It is Tuesday, December the 8th, and welcome to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical considerations in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Now, this is your first time tuning into Goodfellows. Good timing. This is our last episode of 2020, so you can go back and binge watch after this. But what you're in store for for the better part of the next hour is a conversation featuring three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or good fellows as we jokingly refer to them, talking about what may lie ahead. And let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran. John is an economist, the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. He is also the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John. Hi, how are you? Good to see you, my friend. Our second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil is, of course, a noted historian and author, and he is also the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Season's greetings, Neil. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all as the festive season draws close. I'm not sure how festive it will be, but we'll give it a shot. We'll do our very best, Neil. Our third good fellow joining us from the North Pole, Santa Claus, a.k.a. Chris Kringle. Hey, Santa, how are you? Ho, 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 Bill. I'm looking forward to discussing who's been naughty and who's been nice this year. That was my first <laughs> question. Ferguson and Cochran, give us a rundown. Are they getting anything? I think they got much better as the year went on, especially John. I just saw his heart grow two sizes bigger, not unlike this man I used to know called the Grinch. <laughs> well, Santa, thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, are you a good fellow's watcher, Santa Claus? Of course, and very popular here in the North Pole. Good. Well, give our best to Mrs. Claus, please. But seriously, folks, our third good fellow, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fouad Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he's the author of the best-selling book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. H.R., good to see you. Hey, great to see you, Bill. We're going to do something unusual for our final episode of 2020, and we're just going to touch a lot of bases and just sort of look back at 2020 and look ahead to 2021. But HR, I thought we would start with you and uh, offer a few thoughts on a great American who just passed away, and that is Chuck Yeager, the man with the right stuff, the first American to break the sound barrier, passed away at the age of 97. Your thoughts, right. HR? Well, we, we had we had the great benefit of Chuck Yeager being with us for 97 years. And and I think at this time of year, especially in the after the year we've been through, we ought to take time to celebrate a great life, a, a life of public service and, and, and a life of, of someone who wasn't afraid to take risks mm -hmm. and take risks so, so that we can remain on the cutting edge and remain strong as a country. And so I, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity to to reflect on his life uh, and his example and, uh, and, and, and also the great strength of our country. Mm -hmm. Neil, John? Well, let me add a few words. As a lifelong aviation fanatic, uh, Jaeger, of course, uh, is everyone's god as a pilot. Uh, let me recommend to our listeners uh, his uh, The Right Stuff book, not the movie, if you want to read The Right Stuff. It's excellent. Um, the Chuck Jaeger autobiography is excellent, uh, not just his exploits as a young man breaking the sound barrier and as an amazing pilot, uh, but as a leader in the military, as a general in the integrating military, and some of the uh, excellent things he did there. Uh, altogether, a, a wonderful American, a truly great pilot and inspiration to many of us. Okay, Neil? Well, I, I was assuming that you were referring to Valérie uh, Giscard d'Estaing, another very distinguished man uh, who, who passed, uh, uh, one of uh, the most impressive uh, presidents of the post-war French Republic, uh, and somebody who played a, a, a really crucial role in, in creating the institutions of 
the international order, the origins of the G7 lie in Giscard's time. Uh, we won't have time to go all through all the great uh, men and women who passed uh, this year, but uh, Giscard was also in my mind. I met with him only a couple of years ago in his spectacular uh, palatial apartment in, in Paris, and he he flirted throughout our meeting with my research assistant in a way that was truly Gallic. Very good. Uh, so, Neil, let's uh, start talking about the year 2020 in review. Uh, I'll throw the first question at you. Uh, if the pandemic was obviously the lead story of 2020, uh, and let's assume Donald Trump's defeat is perhaps the second biggest story of 2020, what is the third most significant story, Neil, or what is the most interesting sleeper story? Um, I guess, obviously, the third most important story would be the finding of the vaccines. But what do you put in the number three spot? I think the other big story of the year, and it's one we've talked about often on Goodfellows, uh, is, is China's uh, role uh, as the starting point of the pandemic. But also, I think uh, the extraordinary wolf warrior diplomacy that the Chinese government used to try to change the narrative, uh, which backfired on it completely. So for me, 2020 was also the year Cold War II became visible to many people who hadn't realized it was happening, especially Europeans who up until this year were still inclined to give the Chinese Communist Party the benefit of the doubt. I think a big story of 2020 was that the scales fell from many European eyes. Mm -hmm. John? Let me chime in on that theme because uh, we've been talking about China and Cold War II. It's a fun thing to look back on our many Goodfellows discussions over the years. Let me recommend to our listeners Neil's uh, recent um, essay on Cold War II. I thought it was excellent. Well done, Neil. Um, I think it points, uh, first of all, China is losing Cold War II very quickly. <laughs> and yeah, no, this is going to go on for a long time. But the rest of the world uh, looks at China and the US and is pretty much deciding which side it wants to be on as imperfect as we are. Uh, the idea of exporting the Chinese model is, is Nothing, nowhere near as attractive as many nations seem to find the Soviet model in the 1950s. Second, I think it reveals China's weakness. Why is China turning to authoritarianism? Because they're scared. In fact, I'll still defend that the consensus of the liberal order was right, that if China becomes rich, it will demand democracy. And that is exactly why the Chinese Communist Party knows that they're doomed unless they clamp down. Uh, so they're doing it out of fear, um, and they're going to be dangerous for a long time. Uh, Taiwan is likely to be the new Berlin, uh, but um, it, they're doing it out of weakness. They're doing it because ultimately they know their people won't leave them in charge if they become rich. Uh, so I think it, and it's, it's driving the West to stop squabbling and recognize that we have a common problem. So there's, there's even good things in the beginnings of Cold War uh, too. HR, your choice for the third biggest story of the year. Just a quick comment on China. I think we have something to celebrate in 2020, which because in the beginning of the year, you know, with the so-called trade war and so forth and the tech war and cold war with China, you often heard countries say, hey, don't force us to choose, you know, between Washington and Beijing. And I think now at the end of 2020, it's pretty clear that the choice is between sovereignty and, and servitude. So that's positive. And I would just add the Middle East, you know, Bill. Yeah. It's not often, you know, that, <laughs> that good news comes out of the Middle East. And we had the Abraham Accords uh, with, you know, with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Sudan normalizing relations with, with Israel. They're doing this out of a recognition that, that the greatest threat to their security in the region, especially on the part of UAE uh, and Bahrain, comes from Iran. And therefore, their security interests are aligned with Israel. 
this has tremendous potential, not only to countering uh, Iran's destructive strategy across the Middle East, but also of for isolating jihadist terrorists from sources of ideological support, ideological support that comes really from their ability to use a perverted interpretation of Islam to draw young people to the co to the cause under the auspices of religious war. Well, the Abraham Accords and the name associated with it emphasizes that hey, we're all people of the book, and these jihadist terrorist organizations are are, are criminals uh, who use a perverted interpretation of religion for a political and a criminal agenda. So I would say I would, since, since Neil, uh, you know, uh, took, took mine, well, which was China, I think it's worth <laughs> emphasizing the developments in the Middle East as well. Oh, we are, we are, um, however, we're also secular governments who have a separation of church and state. And it is, I think the underlying freedom under our governments, uh, rather than the fact that we're all people of the book together. But I, I want to hundred percent celebrate that as a, tremendously positive thing that happened this year. All right. I'd like uh, any of you to uh, jump in here. The COVID prophecy that turned out to be true and the COVID prophecy that turned out to be false. The COVID prophecy that turned out to be true was that there was going to be a pandemic and a great many people made that prophecy. Uh, most people have heard that Bill Gates gave a TED talk on this subject, but he was only one of uh, more than a dozen people who in the last 20 years or so foresaw that we would at some point be hit uh, by a global pandemic uh, and that this would be an enormously disruptive thing. Uh, my favorite example is uh, the uh, wonderful uh, bet uh, that the Astronomer Royal Lord Rees uh, made with uh, the Harvard psychologist Steve Pinker that uh, by the end of 2020, there would have been an, either a bio-error or act of bio-terror that would claim a million casualties. And of course, uh, Martin Rees has won that bet. So I think he gets, he gets the prize. But it's worth adding that when there are so many prophecies, when there are so many Cassandras, uh, that the tendency, and this has been true since the original Cassandra, is for people not to quite believe them. Remember, Cassandra's tragedy is that she can't actually persuade everybody of the disaster that she sees coming. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the key points about prophecy. Uh, after the event, we all realized how very right the Cassandras were. Beforehand, we're like, ah, pandemic, really? Mm -hmm. I, I, I would, I would, I would... Uh say the lesson of what Neil just said is uh, asking for prophecies is a bad idea and listening to prophets is a bad idea because for every prophet, there's a hundred people crying wolf. Um, prophets are uh, only right ex post. Um, so we should not be looking for prophecies. We should be having a much more resilient uh, public system that is able to take what comes when it comes uh, rather than hope that this time we'll find the one who really channeled the proper the, the proper temple of the proper God and foresaw what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. HR? I would say going back deep into the Goodfellow archives in the early days of the pandemic, I think we got a couple of things right. I think one of the things that we got right is that that, there, that we would look in retrospect at the, at the biomedical innovation of therapies and especially a vaccine as a success and an otherwise bleak record of of dealing with the pandemic. And then we were right about something sad as well, that even as we were in the midst of, of really the shortages of, of, of PPE, personal protective equipment and, and of ventilators and so forth, we started talking very early about the strain that the pandemic of the, this pandemic would put on people, uh, especially on our, 
our healthcare workers and our first responders. And sadly, that's that's turning out to be the case. And these are our real, real heroes. I would say that the prophecy that turned out not to be true, maybe I was a little bit optimist, over-optimistic. I thought the pandemic would help bring us together. I think to some extent, especially in retrospect, it will have, especially as we celebrate, right, the courage and determination and selfless service of uh, of our healthcare workers, our first responders, our essential workers. Uh, but of course, it, it fed in to this really vitriolic political season that we're still in the middle of and, and contributed, I think, to, rather than detracted from uh, the polarization we sense in, in our society today. Hey, I want to add a, a prophecy that I think worked out well. Uh, I want to celebrate my fellow economists who have teamed up with epidemiologists and I think made tremendous understanding increases understanding how these things worked. Remember the prophecies that came initially was that the reproduction rate would stay at two and a half and millions upon millions of people would die and it would sweep over the world. And economists quickly noted, wait a minute, people aren't totally dumb. Uh, and they change their behaviors when they see something going on and made much more accurate predictions of what would be going on. Um, unfortunately, uh, some, a lot of the models are not that enthusiastic, that optimistic and the lack of optimism proved true, for example, the, the, the multiple waves. But the integration of, of behavior with epidemiology has been, I think, an intellectual advance and, and one where some prophecies got improved quickly. It's worth adding the prophecies that were wrong. And there were many of those. Uh, President Trump, I'm afraid, was one of those who prophesied that the virus would disappear like a miracle. Uh, but there were plenty of people uh, on the left who, who were wrong too. Uh, a great many people early on back in February and into March insisted that it wouldn't be any worse than the seasonal flu and that the whole thing was being exaggerated. Uh, you, you look back and you realize that there was a, an enormous amount of magical thinking in the early months of this year, and it wasn't confined to one side of the political spectrum. So yeah, I think we should uh, remember how many bad calls there were. And, and the consequences of those bad calls were that we ended up responding very poorly to this pandemic compared with other countries that were quicker on their feet. It's still staggering to me that we are now in December and there's still no Western country that's come close to putting in place the kind of system that very quickly Taiwan and South Korea were able to put together right at the very outset. Uh, so yeah, I think the false prophecies uh, probably outnumbered the right prophecies, uh, particularly in the first quarter of 2020. All right, I'd like to show the three of you a videotape. And this is a woman who owns a bar and grill in Sherman Oaks, which is in greater Los Angeles. And she is mad. And she's mad because uh, restrictions have been released in Los Angeles County. She cannot do outdoor dining at her business. So this is my place, the Pineapple Hill Grill and Saloon. If you go to my page, you can see all the work I did for outdoor dining. And I come in today and I walk into my parking lot. And obviously, Mayor Garcetti has approved this being set up for a movie company. I'm losing everything. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio, which is right over here. And people wonder why I'm protesting and why I have had enough. <laughs> they have not given us money and they have shut us down. We cannot survive, my staff cannot survive. Look at this. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face, this is dangerous. Mayor Garcetti and Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person 
that doesn't have unemployment, that does not have a job, and all the businesses that are going under. And we need your help. We need somebody to do something about this. This reminds me a bit of the uh, Great Recession and people's reaction to foreclosures and their anger with the political class and the privileged who escaped justice for much of that. Neil, question for you. Is this going to lead to another Tea Party movement and a Tea Party movement the likes of 2010, Neil, or a Tea Party movement the likes of 1773? Well, I think one has to recognize that this is a quite Californian story. I saw that video when it was first posted. Mm -hmm. And uh, for months, uh, in fact, all year, I've been making the argument that outdoor transmission of COVID-19 is very rare. It is an indoor uh, disease. Uh, it is transmitted in restaurants indoors, especially with sealed windows and air conditioning. The evidence in the scientific literature on this is absolutely overwhelming. Uh, and it was clear early on. I remember one of the first studies that came out of China uh, identifying uh, the nature of spread was able to find almost no cases of outdoor, uh, outdoor spread. And yet, repeatedly, the authorities in California have closed right. parks, closed beaches, and now in an act which smacks of political desperation have lashed out at the many, many restaurants that have been operating, uh, which you can easily do in Southern California year round, outdoors. I think it's outrageous and it's particularly infuriating when uh, this comes just days after it was revealed that Governor Gavin Newsom and indeed uh, the mayor of San Francisco, uh, London Breed, violated their own rules by dining indoors at one of the fanciest restaurants in Northern California. And you just have to ask yourself, when is the California Tea Party going to manifest itself? Because this, this nuttiness is not going on in every state. Uh, it is a peculiar feature of California that the regulations have been amongst the tightest uh, in the world, and they've been highly ineffective at averting a sustained spread of, of COVID-19. So for me, the big question looking ahead to 2021 is whether those first signs of a backlash against the Californian Democrats, which you saw in the election when all the progressive uh, propositions on the ballot were voted down, might turn into something more lasting and might actually restore the fortunes of the Republican Party in California, because the state desperately needs a change of political leadership before one of the greatest economies, perhaps the greatest economy in history, is destroyed by political uh, misgovernance. Mm -hmm. May I add to that? There's more to that story, too. Uh, at the same time, a group of, I think, restaurant owners and other business people has sued uh, the uh, governor <clears throat> for the yes. latest uh, uh, bunch of uh, uh, regulations. And the essence of the suit is interesting that there is no scientific basis for any of it. It's not just that. This is a long page after page after page of regulation. Our own beloved county of Santa Clara put in a regulation saying that people traveling more than 150 miles must quarantine for 14 days and may not even go out uh, if they've had a test. Because of course, 151 miles away from us, there is, I guess, packs of roving zombies infected with COVID-19. Whereas if you drive to mom's house in Livermore uh, and have a Thanksgiving dinner there, nobody's, uh, nobody's infected. I mean, it's just the long list of regulations is ludicrous. Nobody pays any attention to them in their personal life, uh, but they, the one thing they know how to do is to regulate business out of existence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we're, what we're seeing is the, the ninny state, the, the, the and, and, you know, craziness of the regulatory state gone mad. And that is really 
The loser here is, is the regulatory state. At the local level, uh, the FDA, the CDC, I hope we'll come back to the spectacular incompetence they've shown. Now, does that add up to people understanding the larger picture uh, that this is an inherently flawed system uh, and, and rise up to uh, somewhat more freedom or not? That'll be interesting to be see, to seen. In California too, <clears throat> by the way, you know, even in a one party state, the fight's between the one party and there are sensible Democrats as, as you know, Republican is, is such a reviled brand name around here. I, I dare not have hope that that comes back. But there are sensible Democrats and, and perhaps the sensible Democrats rather than uh, the, the current progressive wing, which is mostly extraordinarily rich uh, tech people who uh, want to signal their virtue. That's kind of who's in charge right now. Well, they're all moving out of state to their summer houses anyway. <laughs> so we'll see what happens to California's politics. What do you say, HR? Well, yeah, I, I just think that, of course, I, I look at this kind of through my lens as a as a military commander. And you know, what you want to do is you want to encourage initiative at the lower levels by telling people the most you can about complex operations, even dangerous operations, and allowing them to take the initiative. Whenever you put restrictive measures on people, you squelch initiative. And oftentimes what you find is those commanders who use very specific controls are those who are doing so because they haven't thought conceptually about an operation and, and, and haven't developed a sound strategy. So I think that these go hand in hand. These restrictions that make no sense uh, go hand in hand with not having an effective strategy that, as we've talked about on this program, should be based on, on, a, on a holistic and realistic understanding of the nature of the problem, how the disease is transmitted, and therefore what are the appropriate measures, not the nonsensical ones, uh, that ought to be taken to limit the spread of the disease. Right. Neil, you mentioned the uh, governor of California and the mayor of San Francisco dining at the French Laundry Restaurant. Add to the list uh, a Los Angeles County supervisor by the name of Sheila Kuehl. Neil, she was a television star back in the 1950s and 60s, only in California. Uh, she and her uh, fellow supervisors voted to ban outdoor dining in Los Angeles County, and she celebrated by promptly going out to have dinner at an Italian restaurant in Santa Monica. So you just have to shake your head at it. Um, I would call Joe Biden the president-elect, but my friend John Cochran would come on, come down on me like a ton of bricks for doing so. So duly noted, John. Uh, but we do know that in about six Pres weeks- Presumptive president-elect is fine. <laughs> so many words, though. But you, you raise a valid point. Next week, he'll be president-elect, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Well, most likely. You never know what will happen you in this never, country. You never know. Okay. We do know that six weeks from now, Donald Trump is likely to be a former president. So here's the question to the three of you. Can you name, are you willing to walk out on a plank? Are you willing to tell us who the next elected official who is likely to be a political casualty due to pandemic? Here in the US or abroad? Well, I hope it will be Gavin Newsom. I hope it will be the governor of California whose performance has been lamentable. And I don't know, I, New York is pretty close, close second. Uh... Well, I think they, they're gonna be in a dead heat, aren't they? But the irony is that uh, uh, on the East Coast, the liberal media are continuing to pretend that Governor Cuomo did a good job in New York instead of woefully bad job. And indeed, awards are being uh, uh, showered down on him, uh, including uh, an Emmy award, implausibly. Uh, this is a uh, almost like uh, President Obama getting the Nobel Peace Prize before he'd even unpacked in the White House. Uh, uh, Cuomo also has a book coming out uh, proclaiming what a tremendous job he did. Yeah. I, I really do hope that the voters of New York see through this and recollect that uh, when the pandemic first uh, struck the United States, it was overwhelmingly in New York uh, that it uh, that it 
wreaked the worst uh, damage and uh, terrible miscalculations, particularly with respect to elderly care, were a reason for that. So yeah, I'd give I'd give them uh, I'd give them each uh, uh, equal an equal share of the booby prize. Mm -hmm. uh, what about Boris Johnson or Macron? Are they in trouble? Well, Macron is not in trouble. President Macron uh, is going to be one of those rare birds uh, of president of the French Republic who gets a second term. Hasn't happened since Jacques Chirac. Of course, the election's now still a, a couple of years away, but Macron's polling uh, strongly and has reinvented himself uh, in the course of the last couple of years as a kind of uh, metrosexual version of uh, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, and the most recent incarnation of this is the remarkable uh, legislation that he's just put forward to control uh, and limit the spread of political Islam in France. Uh, a remarkable uh, departure from the softly, softly approach taken by nearly every other European leader. Uh, Boris Johnson, by comparison, is uh, uh, undoubtedly in a very bad place. Uh, one year after a spectacular election victory, uh, for the very obvious reason uh, that his government did not handle uh, the pandemic well. Uh, and it's in the midst still of uh, the divorce uh, of the century, namely Brexit, with uh, further negotiations to come. I expect they'll still be negotiating on New Year's Eve the way that's going. Uh, but I think it's been a much worse year for Boris Johnson than for Emmanuel Macron. I'd like to say that I think the lessons of this year are less in the personalities, who's up and who's down, the excitement of individual politicians' careers, but in, in the world of ideas. Um, the, I forget her name, the, the woman you just interviewed about regulations, uh, the, the, the uh, video we just saw about regu restaurant regulations. Will she and the people like her um, still vote to put the same people who uh, regulated COVID in charge of regulating climate change by the same methods uh, for example. So do, do we see some turn against the detailed direction of the regulatory state, the expansion of healthcare, which is something the Democrats are big for? I think that the, the, I hope that that experience will change the broader constellation of ideas that the electorate has and that the elected politicians will have to follow. But I think those, that's, more, that's the more interesting story of this big experience we've had here. Okay. HR, who else on the world stage might be on thin ice? Yeah, I think Vladimir Putin's on on thin ice, and you know, of course, he has a he has his hands on on levers of power that are that are likely to keep him in power. But his but his popularity was already diminishing before COVID. It was supposed to be a really big big year for him in 2020, right, with the celebration of the 75th anniversary of the end of the Great Patriotic War, and then the celebration of his rewriting of the Constitution or getting it rewritten so he could extend his rule till 2036. But already, based on rigging of municipal elections uh, in, in 2019, there have been protests against him. And then he just removed a popular provincial leader in the eastern part of the country. You know, the, the economy is stagnant. They haven't done well with COVID, especially in rural areas. And they're going through another wave as, as we are right now. And then you add the collapse of oil prices. So uh, it's been a, a tough year for Vladimir Putin. And I think uh, he might be on, on thin ice. And, and I think that you know, as Russia emerges, it'll be very interesting to see you know, how they regard, you know, keeping him uh, in power uh, up to 2036 and potentially beyond. Okay. While we are still in the Trump zone, I want to bundle three questions uh, into one for the three of you. Question number one, do you think Donald Trump will pre-pardon himself, any family member, his inner circle? Question number two, should Joe Biden do for Trump what Gerald Ford did for Richard Nixon? 
issue a preemptive pardon and a, quote, long national nightmare. And question number three, will Donald Trump pull a Grover Cleveland and run again in 2024? If he does, will he be as a Republican or a 21st century bull moose? Yes, no, and yes as a Republican. Okay, so yes, he will pre-pardon himself. No, Correct. Biden will not. Trump. I'm almost sure that pardons will be distributed like Christmas gifts uh, in the coming weeks. I do not think it will be necessary for Joe Biden, therefore, to pardon anybody because there'll be pardons all round. Uh, and I do think that uh, Trump will seek to make a comeback as the Republican nominee in 2024. And it will be very difficult indeed to stop that, given his on ongoing very uh, strong support with the Republican Party's base. So as a Republican, so, Neil, not as an independent. Not as an independent. He wouldn't need to do that. All right. John? Uh, slightly different views. I don't care if it happens by pardons and who gives them. Um, the, the norms of democracy, that uh, you don't bring a gun to a knife fight, uh, that we, you know, there's certain behaviors that we stop ourselves from because the other side stops ourselves from, those are steadily eroding. And, and the criminalization of politics is a, is a trend uh, against that norm. We must not become a banana republic where when you lose an election, uh, you go to jail, your family goes to jail, your business assets are, are, are taken, or in some countries you head to the firing squad. Uh, we must not become that kind of country because then uh, the person in power does everything possible to stay in power using all the awesome uh, power of the government to do that. It is absolutely vital that we don't uh, set up a pattern of, of uh, using the ju judicial system, even when there's reason to do it, to persecute the, um, the administration, and not, not just the president, but uh, people who work for the administration. Uh, AOC called for their banning and shunning. Uh, this is just absolutely tremendously dangerous, and we must not go down uh, that road. So, uh, Trump, when Trump said lock her up, that was about the worst. There's plenty of bad things he said, but that was, I'm glad he did not do it and didn't send uh, the FBI and the Department of Justice after Hillary Clinton. He didn't mean it. Uh, a lot of Democrats uh, still mean that about Trump. He's still under investigation by uh, the various attorney generals around the country. This is just a nor, I don't care how it happens, but we do not prosecute people who lose elections on either side. And, and that'll be just tremendously dangerous for democracy. Will he come back? Uh, he'll probably try to. Uh, because he can get campaign contributions <laughs> by doing so. Will he be a force? Uh, no, uh, af especially after this, speaking of, of, of norms, now the norm that's disappearing is the one that you accept that you've lost elections. It's not just Trump, uh, Stacey Abrams still hasn't given in on her election. The Democrats didn't, didn't uh, you know, grant Trump legitimacy for four years. Uh, Trump is making it much worse with what he's doing now. After these antics, uh, I do not think he'll be a serious presidential candidate. Uh, he will disrupt the Republican primaries for sure when he tries to run again. But it's part of the TV game show. Uh, and I, but I think uh, his, his reputation is so low after these antics that he, he is not likely to be a serious candidate next time around. Hey, Joe, does he pardon himself? Does he run again? <laughs> you know, I think he, he, could, he could run again. You know, he, he likes a, a fight for sure. Uh, and I think he's drawn to you know, to the chaos and, and, uh, and to the, the, the role as the, uh, the role as a disruptor, you know, I, I think I just would highlight though, the importance of maintaining you know, the independence of our judicial process and, and, and due process under the law and equal treatment under the law and not weaponizing, 
you know, our judicial system and, and law enforcement against political adversaries, right? I mean, our, our founders were most, they were most concerned about factions. And I'll tell you, I've served in countries where, you know, where the, where uh, law enforcement is weaponized against political opposition and where people have to go to typically criminalized patronage networks or tribal protection uh, for, for protection because they don't have confidence in, in the rule of law in the country. Uh, I don't think we're there. Certainly we're not there in this country. I think we're actually seeing the resilience of our, of our judicial institutions, but it is irresponsible for politicians on both sides of the political spectrum from the president to, to AOC uh, to, to suggest that we should, we should weaponize our, our judicial process and law enforcement against the other. Right. And I think nothing is more dangerous in connection with the potential to drive us even further apart and also to diminish our confidence in our institutions. Okay, let's learn a little bit more about the three of you now, if you wouldn't mind. Question, quote, during COVID, I developed a new appreciation for what? Fill in the blank. Well, in my case, it was the novels of Sir Walter Scott, the great Scottish novelist who really transformed uh, the novel as, uh, as a form at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, the, the creator really of the historical novel. And I had uh, been put off him as a, as a young man uh, warned that it was dull uh, and old-fashioned and stuffy. And, of course, I should have known that those were recommendations. Uh, but it's only this year in the plague year that I turned to Scott and uh, and, and I began uh, reading the Waverley novels, uh, named after the first in the series Waverley. And this proved to be uh, almost a telepathic decision because at one and the same time, my dear mother, 83 years old, on her own in a village in England, began to do the very same thing. And we discovered that by coincidence, we had both embarked on reading uh, Scott's great uh, works. And it's been a tremendous source of solace to both of us. We've been able to have a weekly seminar on Scott. We're reading them in sync. Every now and then she pulls ahead, it must be said. And, uh, and I must say, this has been an, an opportunity for us to rediscover a huge part of our heritage. You realize once you read Scott that Scott is actually everywhere, ubiquitous. It became such an integral part uh, of Western civilization when he was the most read author in the English speaking world. And it's also been a treat because so much of Scott's novels are set in our native land. So we've been, we've been revisiting our homeland in our memories together, uh, linked across, across the Atlantic by literature. John, you developed a new appreciation for what? Well, I'm not nearly so literary. It's a family show, by the way, John. <laughs> no, no, no. So my, my life has changed. Uh, so I have certainly appreciated the time I've spent at home with family. Uh, for the last six months, uh, my daughter and her husband, the uh, painter who has made these wonderful paintings behind me, that's her self-portrait self on the uh, side, a rather bitter self-portrait. It's a self-portrait with inflamed esophagus, which is a quite sad one, but she's, she's the painter. Among other things, a, uh, a, she's a PhD student in history of science and her husband who is a, uh, uh, he's a theoretical physicist have been with us for six months and we have just really enjoyed the pleasures of, of, a, uh, of a tight family life. Of course, we've missed, uh, I, I now realize how much I, I missed seeing our larger family and my colleagues. Uh, I, got a lot out of going in and having the random lunches we had at Stanford and uh, seeing my good fellows in person and the, uh, the kind of interactions one has uh, in, in, in our uh, wonderful Hoover environment. 
So it, uh, it has sharpened the appreciation for the things that are gone, but also raised the appreciation for the, the quiet uh, things we have at home. HR, your newfound appreciation would be what? Well, uh, for grandchildren. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, but, you know, sort of like John, we, we, you know, we've appreciated the opportunity to have our family kind of come back together at, here. And we've had our, our daughter and uh, son-in-law, twin grandsons, and, and our other daughters and other son-in-law you know, nearby. So, so a new appreciation, I guess, for family and the opportunity to be together and to see these, you know, the, these uh, young, wonderful boys, you know, grow across 15 months. And, and then, uh, and then, and then also for, for friends as well, who I've been disconnected with for a while, or not as closely connected as I wanted to. So through the, you know, the magic of zoom also, you know, we've had these, you know, we've had these zoom cocktail parties and get togethers with, you know, with the officers from our cavalry troop in desert storm, for example, or some of my old friends that, with whom I taught history at West Point. And right. so it's been, it's been fun to reconnect with people who otherwise, if we were, you know, if our lives were more normal than they had been during the pandemic, uh, we might not have had the opportunity to reconnect with or stay connected with. Okay. HR, while I have your attention, the best book you read in, uh, during the pandemic, other than your own, of course, uh, or the best movie you watched, the best content you streamed. You know, I've, I've read a lot of great books this year because, uh, you know, I felt like I needed to, to, to do a competent job on, on, on my book. I'll just share two that I've just, that I've just finished now that are, that are into that, that third topic that, that Neil brought up in the beginning on, on China. This is The China Nightmare by Dan Blumenthal, uh, which I, I recommend it because he also highlights the, um, you know, the, the decaying state part of the of the China dynamic and then and by, by a young scholar Jonathan Ward who Neil introduced uh, introduced us to China's vision for victory I, I would I would recommend as well and then on streaming content I mean I've been I've quite a bit of it I hate to admit you know but you know I I I, I um I enjoyed Yellowstone so I could imagine Neil's environs uh where he is now uh, and, then, and then I also am taken with this mystery series, uh, BBC Masterpiece series, Endeavor, where you have a, you know, a, a young Oxford-educated police detective who solves murder mysteries. Uh, and then I have to also admit, you know, not to keep going on about this, you know, about, but I do enjoy an old classic Columbo episode, you know, <laughs> from now and then, because he is, he is so, he is so persistently, you know, underrated and, and, uh, and, and therefore the criminals are vulnerable uh, to, to, um, you know, to, to his, his, his feigned lack of, of attention and focus, but then also it's, it's great scenes of old LA, you know, and, and, uh, right. and, uh, and so I, so I, those are some that I've enjoyed and, and, um, Thank goodness for you know, the books I've been able to read and then the streaming content in the evenings with a glass of Pinot. Okay. John Cochran, top uh, Columbo. I uh, can't tell. Well, of course, the two most important books I read last year were Battlegrounds. Uh, and I am uh, halfway through uh, the manuscripts of uh, Neil's Doom, uh, which I highly recommend. I, I read it uh, after dinner and then fire Neil off long emails, which is, I'm sure he's... Uh, not happy to see. <laughs> I'm immensely grateful to you, John. Uh, you're the kind of graduate advisor that I never had, uh, <laughs> taking it apart line by line and uh, helping me improve it. So I'm hugely grateful to hey, you. And uh, let, yeah, me just, let I, me just add, can I just jump in and say, hey, I'm really enjoying it as well. It is so beautifully written. And, and it's such a succinct description of, of each of the, of the chapter subjects. It, just even in the table of contents that I've enjoyed. So I'm just getting into it now, Neil, but just wonderful job on it. I can't wait to 
see it in print and, and, and I'll continue reading it this weekend. So Thanks. other than self-promotion, I'll highlight a book I just finished uh, recently, um, George Will's Conservative Sensibility. Ooh. It's been out a while ago, uh, but <laughs> George sent me a paperback copy, which got me to finally, I've been meaning to read it for a long time. Uh, I tend to read in the bathtub, so it's, it's pretty, uh, it's both wet and covered with margin notes. Uh, this is a wonderful book. I, I would say a, a, a one-stop shop in contemporary political philosophy, beautifully written as you'd expect. Um, uh, very thought-provoking and in both setting out uh, a vision, vision of what uh, conservatism means or ought to mean in the U.S. And, and for my thinking also, I, it's so well-written, I can see the holes in it where I think it can be improved. So uh, a great book that both informs me and sets me uh, on a project at some point going forward is, is the best one could ask for. Neil, we covered books with you. And for streaming content in your house, I have this vision of Paw Patrol and Daniel Tiger and Dinosaur Train, uh, uh, not stopping, at least during the daytime. Uh, let me pose a different question to you. I'd like you to listen to the following clip and tell me the significance of this. Okay, so Neil, other than that bass player looking uh, scarily like H.R. McMaster, um, <laughs> what does that music mean to you? Well, I once described myself as a punk Tory uh, because I came of age in the late 1970s uh, when two things happened simultaneously. Punk rock exploded uh, onto the scene with the Sex Pistols anarchy in the UK. That was the Stranglers, Something Better Change, one of the great uh, anthems of that time. And at the same time, Margaret Thatcher became Conservative leader and then Prime Minister. And there was this tremendous uh, sense of, of rebellion about being uh, a young Tory then. I can vividly remember how I and my friends at Oxford, Andrew Sullivan amongst them, uh, regarded our conservative views uh, as a kind of a punk uh, political form, as provocative to the stuffy social democratic and labor establishment as the Stranglers and the Sex Pistols were to the musical establishment. Now, I have been uh, quietly introducing my eight-year-old son, Thomas, uh, to punk rock. I, you might accuse me of, of corrupting minors, but uh, it, it's actually the most wonderful music to leap around to. And what uh, boys uh, right into their teens need a lot of is leaping around. And you saw in that clip uh, just how we used to leap around. The dance of the time was the pogo, and you uh, gathered uh, in densely packed uh, pubs and clubs and pogoed uh, in a way that, of course, is completely unthinkable in the age of social distancing. So I'm immensely nostalgic for the punk years, for pogoing in crowded clubs uh, to music that just lets all your frustrations uh, burst out. And I'm glad to say that Thomas's favorite so far of all the things I've played in was a strangler, something better change. And hearing it again, ah, what a classic. Okay, HR, what music speaks to your Philly roots? Hey, it's it, it's Motown and it's funk, okay? And and so, you know, I, I'll tell you, when I think back on my time as National Security Advisor, I think, okay, what's going to distinguish me, really? You know, it's, it's you know, it's, I'm not going to be the longest serving or the smartest. I think that's the, the subject of uh, of Neil's biography, uh, 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 biographic work. Uh, 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 this is uh, Henry Kissinger, of course. It wasn't going to be the shortest serving, but I, I think I was the funkiest, uh, Bill, going back <laughs> to my early days there. And, and, you know, I think there are just some life lessons we can learn uh, and, and we need to be, you know, we need, we need to be in rhythm. 
We need to be in rhythm with our foreign policy in the area of national security. And I think we're offbeat right now. We're not playing in the pocket, you know, and, and I think we need a dose of funk. And I'm not just saying just kind of some mild funk. I mean, like some serious funk, like Parliament Funkadelic, right? And and if you think about some of the, you know, some of the lyrics, the wisdom, and I'll quote Clinton here. And by Clinton, I mean, you know, I mean, George Clinton. <laughs> George. Parliament Funkadelic, right? I mean, for example, I mean, I think one of the themes of this of this show is, you know, Free your mind and your ass will follow. I think that's a lyric that is, that is profoundly important. I think as we look at the polarization in our society, right, we should, you know, we should be one nation under a groove. We could use some of that right now. And and as, you know, as, as, uh, as the theme of uh, and COVID, you know, if you don't like the effects, don't produce the cause. You know, so I, I think going back to some old parliament would do us some good. And, uh, and that's where I would say my roots are. Richard, why don't you go to the director and suggest a new uh, slogan for Hoover instead of ideas defining a free society? <laughs> One nation under groove. Well, and, and you all feel free to call me General Funkenstein. You know, I mean, I, if you'd like to. <laughs> all right, John Cochran in Chicago Roots. What music speaks to you? Uh, I love that HR's taste in music is that which will bring us together. Uh, you know, HR. It's the, the OJs. It's one trade. <laughs> you, you've had this. Uh, you've had this theme throughout the year, and I want to salute you for it. I mean, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, so Parliament Funkadelic, Average White Band was the one we kind of liked in a in a funny way. Uh, that that really brings me back. Uh, and you know, like everyone, the the music of my youth still rings. Uh, lately, I've I've actually discovered. Let me call it um, music for adults. Uh, it's a, a strange. Uh, taste. Uh, I like uh, the Waylon Jennings, I'm with her, and I'll highlight Lucy Kaplansky. You've probably never heard of these people, uh, but they write music uh, about middle-aged issues, uh, the death of parents, uh, growing up of children, uh, things around the world. And I, I still listen to, from my youth, James Taylor, but in his, uh, in his late middle age, he writes songs that that ring very much to the, not to the to the to the angst of youth and and love as uh, as youthful people do, or to youthful rebellion, but to uh, the issues of of middle age, which is I hate to tell you guys where we are. Uh, James Taylor had a good 2020, fellows, and so did Carol King. Their signatures were on a lot of Joe Biden fundraising emails that I received, which I'm not sure what that says about my age, but they, they were trying to raise money for me. Question for the three of you. If I could give you a vaccine, your own plane, and let you travel anywhere in the world free of complications, i.e. no quarantines coming or going, where would you go? London. London. Right away, tonight, uh, because... Uh, my older children, two of my older children are there, and I'd get the third to come on over. Uh, London is a city that has withstood many a plague uh, and many plagues worse than this one. Uh, but it's a city that will be the most tremendous fun to be back in uh, when the vaccine, which is already being distributed thanks to the uh, dear old National Health Service, has made uh, England safe again. So that's where I would go. And just to be in one of those crowded pubs sinking a pint of bitter before an Arsenal game, that would be, for me, just the greatest Christmas gift. All right, HR, if you say Philadelphia for reasons that are not sentimental, you're off the show. But where would you go? Well, of course, Philadelphia. Why wouldn't I go to Philadelphia? Why wouldn't anybody go to Philadelphia? I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's the, Have you it's seen the birthplace the of our nation. But hey, this weekend, where I would go is I would go to West Point, which is hosting the Army-Navy game, game for the first time since World War II. And I would watch Army beat the hell out of Navy this Saturday. 
And you should take Neil and his son because it's a spectacle to see everybody come marching into the field. It's just a fantastic thing. John Cochran, where would you go? So many places I, I love around the world, both uh, Europe, the outdoors, and visiting family. I, I find it hard to indulge that fantasy. This is still a hard moment, and, and uh, I feel guilty about uh, dreams of international travel when uh, there's there's so much. So many people are having so much difficult time, like like the. The woman you showed a clip of of a restaurant. How how dare I dream of of going through the museums of uh, London or Paris uh, with uh, with my daughter <laughs> giving giving the guided tour? All right. Final question on the personal front, gentlemen. I was going to ask you whom you would invite over for dinner, but our crack producer Scott Immigrant reminded me that in California you cannot invite people over to your house for dinner. So let me rephrase the question: If you could do a Zoom call with any three notable figures, living or deceased, whom would you choose? Neil? I'll go with uh, a Scottish lineup. There has to be a good bottle of malt whiskey for this get together. Sean Connery, whom we lost uh, this year, would have to be on my, my Zoom invite list. Billy Connolly, uh, the funniest uh, of, uh, of the Scots of uh, that generation. And then I'd use the time machine to bring back the great Robert Burns, our national poet. Now, Zoom is not the most congenial of, of formats, uh, but with the right malt whiskey, I think that would be one hell of a hogmanay. All right, HR, who's on your Zoom call? Hey, so I would bring together maybe some leaders and learn from them who led America through periods of crises and crises of confidence, right? So, hey, it's got to start with George Washington, right? And things look pretty bleak at Valley Forge prior mm-hmm. to the attacks at, at Princeton and Trenton. He turned things around. Uh, and got our nation off to the to, on the right, on the right foot after the revolution. How about how about Ulysses S. Grant, one of the most unlikely military commanders in in our history, who saw us through our most de- devastating war, a war that emancipated four million of our fellow Americans. And then how about Ronald Reagan? And and I, I know Bill, you could probably talk more about Reagan's leadership. Really, you know, at at the, at the end of a period that was that was characterized by a loss of, of the Vietnam War and and stagflation and an oil embargo and and what President Carter called a great malaise in the country, uh, and and he led us into a period of sustained economic growth and re- and increased confidence in who we are as Americans and and of course helped bring about an, an, an end of the of the Cold War. So uh, I think I would I would I would draw on leaders who got us through crises and and helped America emerge stronger from them. Mm-hmm. All right, John, Zoom call uh, for four. When I get my uh, time machine, there's so many people I want to bring. Yes, a, a coalition of founding fathers, maybe Madison, Jefferson, uh, Franklin. Um, see what I'd love. I'd love to take them around and and get their opinion on on what. Uh, Wonderful, the amazing things they surely did not imagine would have happened in this country, and perhaps some of the things that they might uh, that they might worry about where we're going. I'd love to bring back um, Galileo, Newton, Adam Smith. Uh, Galileo probably had no idea what he was kicking off by figuring out where the stars were, but you know, um, as evidence, you know, one of the best pieces of news: the vaccine that we just got was developed in a weekend. <laughs> So really, uh, science is, is the, the greatest piece of news we've had for hundreds of years. And I'd love to bring them back and, uh, and let them see what else. And of course, the other dinner I want to have is my fellow Goodfellas. I miss so much the, the company of a dinner in Palo Alto around the dining room table where I'm now sitting alone, where we can have that, that great wine or, uh, or, or whiskey 
and I can learn in person, not from you guys, uh, as, uh, as, as we are now forced to do on Zoom. Right. So three of us are in California right now, which means that we're under various forms of restrictions. We can't go to restaurants or bars or go to gyms or sporting or cultural events or even travel that much without the government saying no. Uh, Neil Ferguson's the only one who's exempt here, which either speaks to circumstance or Neil just being smarter than us. Um, the question, gentlemen, as we look at these various restrictions right now, the restaurants, the, the gyms, the cultural events and so forth, what do you see coming back in 2021? And what do you think that is going away for maybe longer than we think? Well, the thing that really strikes me is that Americans are going to be much more mobile within the United States than they had been in recent years. Yeah. I am beginning to lose track of the number of eminent entrepreneurs who are leaving California for Texas. Uh, Joe Lonsdale has done it. Uh, and uh, it seems uh, if the rumors are to be believed that Elon Musk uh, is going to follow. Uh, and, uh, and there are others too. Uh, and this is, I think, a healthy sign. You know, voting uh, with your, uh, your ballot is one way of voting, but voting with your feet uh, is a really big part of the American way. Uh, and because of this great country's uh, size uh, and its uh, political diversity, uh, you can vote with your feet. And I did back in March, uh, recognizing that uh, in the face of the pandemic, California would almost certainly handle it in a way that was fundamentally inimical to, fin uh, to individual freedom. Unlike certain states, I'm not going on too much about where we are because I don't want to compromise my dear wife's security. But uh, yeah, you can have a completely different experience uh, where we are uh, amongst the mountains. And I think a lot of people are going to come here and not go back. And that brings me back to the problem that California is now facing, that it is losing the allure, losing the attraction that made it the most dynamic economy in the world. I mean, Silicon Valley without those stars, without the talent, uh, is not going to be a very impressive place. Uh, so yeah, I think the big change is not so much that people are going to be working from home. That's going to persist with a whole bunch of uh, in a whole bunch of different sectors where it can persist. But the much more interesting trend for me is changing your home, moving to another location to uh, protest the way at which uh, the state where you currently live has mishandled COVID-19. Mm -hmm. John? I would add as an economist, yeah, the, the economic story of this um, event is not so much of the aggregate, the, the you know, the recession that then recovers, but the immense reallocations. Um, you know, we're, we're, there's still enormous numbers of people getting fired and enormous numbers of people getting fired. I saw a number, uh, new business formation has been the highest in the last year than it's ever been. Of course, old businesses going out of business is the highest that's ever been. So there's a reallocation across kinds of business and across places, not just California as a state, uh, the, the cities are a disaster right now. Um, armies of homeless, uh, uh, nobody's prosecuting shoplifting. Um, people who live in, in cities say that, you know, muggings are on the rise. Uh, the, the fast downward spiral of San Francisco, Chicago, and New York um, may be, uh, you know, something that's very, very hard to bring back. And yes, once once the tech companies go, uh, the reasons for putting up with everything else here other than the weather uh, go as well. So uh, we're going to see sharp reallocations in America. Hey, sure. Yeah, I, I think travel is going to come back pretty quickly, especially domestic travel, for the reasons Neil mentioned. 
but but really just because there's a lot of deferred travel. We all want to see each other. We want to get our extended families together. You know, I think there are three or four weddings we were supposed to attend in this period of time that have been delayed. So I think the travel sector, domestically at least, you know, air travel in particular is going to is going to come back. I don't know about commercial real estate. I think it's going to be a mix, a, a hybrid from now on of working at the office, which of course we want to do because that's where you can that's where you can can share ideas with one another and be creative and and have the social experiences you want to have in a work environment. But I think it's going to be a mix now. And so I think that a lot of companies are going to downsize in the office space that they need and so forth. So, you know, I think there are going to be some enduring changes. The new normal will not be back to the old new normal. But I think we're going to snap back in some areas much more quickly than some people anticipated, because, again, I, I do believe that the vaccine is going to have the effect that we want and we hope it will have uh, much more quickly than many of the predictions. OK, a final question of the three of you for 2020. My last question, I'm going to ask you this here. Don't everybody smile at once. That question is this. If you had to record a message to go in a time capsule that somebody would dig up 10, 20 years from now to learn about 2020, what would your very brief message be? HR, why don't you go first? Hey, it, it wasn't as bad as we thought it was. <laughs> I mean, so the predictions of, of, of the demise of our democracy were greatly exaggerated. And whereas we don't want to be complacent, we have to work on the problems that, that these crises we've been in in 2020 have revealed uh, that I think we're going to turn out to be a heck of a lot more resilient and we're going to be able to come through this stronger as a, as a country and, 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 and stronger, you know, as, as a people. So, um, that's the message I would I would put in the bottle. And they'll dig that up and find out if you were right or not. <laughs> hey, I'll be right. I'll be right. I'll be right. John, what would you have to say? <laughs> I got to think some more. Pass it on to Neil. <laughs> hey, Neil, over to you. We don't allow time for cogitation on Goodfellas. Come on, Cochrane. The answer is, uh, uh, at the beginning of the year, we feared it might be the Black Death or the 1918-19 influenza. It wasn't that bad, but we handled it almost uh, as badly as we could have. Uh, but as HR says, uh, there was a surprise in store because all those journalists who predicted civil war, constitutional crisis, Weimar America, endless polarization, uh, got a surprise because the nation actually voted for a centrist political outcome. And I think H.R. Uh, McMaster, my dear friend, had his wish granted uh, because to an extent that hasn't really fully sunk in, the country wasn't divided down the middle by the election, voted for a centrist president, but denied his party uh, almost certainly a majority in the Senate and denied the party any gains in the House uh, or at the state level. So, you know, nobody's really noticed the really surprising thing about 20. 2020, after all we've been through, the massive mess of COVID-19 and the lockdowns, uh, the political outcome was the exact opposite of the Weimar scenario, to an extent that we haven't fully recognized we came together. Very good. So I guess uh, now that I've had a chance to think. It better be good, John. <laughs> no. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, <laughs> 10 years after every crisis is about when we've forgotten the crisis. Uh, I, I actually would have hoped that uh, somebody had dug up such a time capsule about a year ago to remember that we had a financial crisis and uh, people kind of forgot about that. Or that uh, there was an H1N1 and Ebola about 10 years earlier and mm, everyone forgot about that one. Uh, so by 10 years from now is probably when everyone's forgetting that there was a pandemic. And I would like to remind them, hey guys, pandemics come. Uh, the next one will be biologically different, might be much worse. Uh, it might be some other biological problem, uh, you know, a crop pandemic. Uh, be prepared for the worst. 
and keep your country strong. Um, this was also the year when uh, democratic norms were once again, uh, I, I, exactly with Neil, uh, it was wonderful to see the center hold, to see the institutions hold, but those institutions are always weak and always need defending. So uh, keep them strong. Uh, we saw censorship um, really explode this year. Uh, keep, keep your right to speak freely on all sorts of unpopular issues. Keep those creaky structures that those uh, old founding fathers put together so wisely. Make sure you keep them strong. Uh, if you forget about them, uh, when, when you're gonna need them, they're gonna be in trouble. Okay, guys, that's a wrap for 2020. Uh, let me just add one thing. When we first started this adventure back in, I think early April is when we first did our, our show, uh, we didn't know how long we'd be doing this, uh, part because we didn't know how long the pandemic would be going, uh, but we kept going in part because the, the international man of history has been grounded and General Funkenstein is uh, not traveling as much as he normally would. Uh, same with the grumpy economist. Uh, so we've had the great luck of having the three of you available at the same time on a regular basis. Uh, it is the best part of my week getting to talk to the three of you because you're all just bright and brilliant at what you do. And the chemistry that you have, I get very nice notes from people. And the one thing that comes through on this, they constantly say they're really fun. They're really smart. And even when they disagree, it's civil. So people enjoy these conversations very much. I hope you know that. So hope we can keep doing them in 2021. Can I add uh, one, one last thing? I've enjoyed this very much. And, and in fact, I get to see Neil travels so much because he's so popular, it's hard to see him otherwise. So uh, I hope we keep doing this even when we're back to normal. Uh, for all of us, I, I think we have to express some great gratitude to the Hoover donors. Uh, our life is made easier by the fact that we stay home, think big thoughts, do Zooms, and the check keeps coming. Uh, and Hoover is an institution supported by entirely by private philanthropy, uh, were it not for their uh, their efforts, we would not be able to do this. So uh, as, we're, as we're being thankful in the year, uh, let's also thank the Hoover donors. Yes, I'd also like to thank a couple other people, our producer, Scott Immigrant, who puts up with us dumb fellows every week, and uh, our marketing team, Chris Dower and Shauna Farley, who make the trains run on time at Hoover and make all this look seamless. Believe me, behind the scenes, it's not seamless, but it's a lot of fun working with all of you gentlemen. We will see you in 2021, hopefully. So you guys take care. That's it for Goodfellas for 2020. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. We hope you've been enjoying the series. Uh, we will be back next year. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran, we wish you all a pleasant holiday season. By all means, be careful out there. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And we'll keep doing our best at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. And we'll see you next year. Are you a regular Santa HR? Uh, my, my my daughter got it for me, so for for our twin grandsons this uh, Christmas. So I'm not I'm not I'm not a professional Santa or anything creepy like that. Okay. <laughs> Santa Claus Neil is a decidedly mixed message. Either you're very jovial, or you're the only guy who fits in the costume. I was I was the Jesus College Santa one one Christmas when uh, the the master of the college was taken ill and uh, enjoyed it rather more than I was expecting.